I thought I'd start by talking about a project um, that I've been working on for quite a while and if any of my co-authors see the video of this they're going to be very amused because it has been a little while in um, development, this series of essays. Um, but one of the things I've been very, very interested in, I did my PhD on the gentry and I remember in my Viva one of my examiners said, well, what about the clergy? And I said, well, what about the clergy? I'm writing on the gentry. Um, but it sparked a, a, a big idea for me, which was to think about not just the gentry, not just the elite, who of course are the most obvious people to own books and to collect books and to write books, and we're going to talk about some of them in this lecture. Um, but also to think more widely about literate culture and book culture, as I've come to call it, in Kent, um, so thinking about the 16th century, putting the 16th century at the heart of that process, but looking back um, to the 15th century and looking into the 17th century as well. And there are some very famous work by well-known writers and book collectors um, in the 17th century, people like um, Henry Oxenden, people like Sir Edward Deering, uh, people like William Sumner, um, who are very well-known, I think, even now um, for the books they wrote and, and um, their friendships and their networks. But what really interested me was thinking about that bigger picture and thinking, okay, so who else is reading, who else is writing, who else is engaged, um, even at a lesser level, in, in the collection and circulation of ideas um, through books in manuscript and print. Um, so I've been very interested by um, the continuities that this book um, has brought together. So people um, like Sheila Sweetenberg and Mary O'Connor, who have been uh, for quite a, you know, a substantial time now researching medieval Kent um, and thinking about urban archives, thinking about um, monastic um, writing cultures as well. So I was very interested to look back into that period um, as well as, and to think about writers who are not famous as alongside um, those famous writers. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the book um, and some of the really exciting research in it um, and, and name drop as many of the historians and, and academics who have been working on Kent as I possibly can um, in the next half an hour or so. I thought it'd be useful to introduce the writers that I was going to say something about because um, they may be familiar to you and they may not be familiar to you. Um, so I'm going to focus on uh, four Elizabethan writers living in Kent. Uh, Barnaby Googe, um, who was a great translator actually, but not necessarily very well known. He might be well known, uh, best known for his collection of poems. Um, that he published in the 1560s. Uh, but I'm going to be looking at him from the 1570s and his work on a, a big translation exercise on a work about husbandry and gardening and agriculture um, that he published in um, the mid-1570s. Uh, William Lambard. Now I'm sure you've all heard of William Lambard um, and his perambulation of Kent amongst other works, but his perambulation is probably the most famous and most enduring of his works. Um, we're going to talk a bit about, a bit about him. Um, then this was exciting, an exciting find. Um, Reginald Scott, apparently that's a, a, a tis, I don't know how they've authenticated it, but it is a portrait of Reginald Scott, who of course is... Oh, Reginald Scott, yeah, so he's quite well known even now for his discovery of witchcraft, that's the text he's most well known for, um, and it's quite an exciting portrait of him um, with his gold-trimmed hat... Uh, and his fancy ruff, and I'm not sure whether that's, yes, maybe it is gloves. I was wondering whether it's a purse, 
um, but his, his gripping of his gloves. So we'll talk a little bit, bit about him. Um, and then on the end, of course, this is in the 16th century image. This is an image I borrowed from Dover Museum um, because I want to talk about a writer who doesn't have a portrait. Um, he may well have a coat of arms, but not one that I've discovered. Uh, and he's called John Took, and he's a mariner at Dover. And we're going to talk a little bit about him as we go through. So we're thinking about gentry culture. We're thinking about these landed elites um, who have these estates um, across Kent, and we'll have a little look at some of those on a map in a minute. Um, but I also want us to think about that urban culture. So um, John Took is a mariner primarily, although he rises up um, within the, the town um, government um, across the period. Um, but he is primarily an urban, urban individual, an urban writer. And I want to think about those, those two different spaces a little bit as we go through. So those are my four writers. Hopefully we'll think about the pictures as we go through and it won't be, it won't be confusing. Although I'm not going to talk about a lot of scholars, I did want to talk about Joan Thursk um, as a way into thinking about some of this literature and thinking about um, one of the really important things that struck me from um, bringing together these scholars and, and thinking about book culture across this broader period, one of the most important elements that I think the book draws out is the importance of friendship. The importance of friendship for um, the sharing of ideas, the sharing of books and knowledge, and for support um, of writers and in, in enabling that writing process by having a strong support network. And Joan Thirsk, um, was one of my, my heroines, really, because she wrote about the kinds of books I was interested in studying. She wrote about husbandry books um, and non-literary texts um, in very engaging ways. And she says some very interesting things about um, works of agriculture in particular. And she talks about um, Kent and other places. She talks about clusters of friends and collaborators, uh, like-minded gentlemen moved by common concerns um, to share ideas. Um, and she talks about the questioning curiosity of agricultural writers. Um, and this idea that fresh ideas were circulating all the time, that there are circles of farming friends spurring each other on or urging caution, passing round the latest gossip, seeds, plants picked up during their travels. Every gentleman, she says, was influenced by conversation in the circle of his family, friends, neighbourhoods and tenants. They picked up ideas everywhere. And whereas we cannot listen to their conversations, we have access to their books. So I really like that idea that you can be um, in the Weald in Kent, you can be down in Tenterden, you can be um, in the environs of Canterbury. Um, and there's nothing provincial about your ideas, there's nothing provincial about your engagement. Um, these ideas and these conversations and these desire, this desire for knowledge um, is something that she sees as permeating um, the provincial society um, in very interesting ways. And then Peter Laslett, of course, who famously talked about the bookishness of the Kentish gentry in the 17th century. Um, he describes Kent in a very interesting way as a dispersed university. Peter, Peter Laslett wrote a very famous article 
very well-known article on, on Kent. Um, a dispersed university, he says, whose professors were deputy lieutenants, whose faculty meetings took place at the quarter sessions, and whose research workers found their material in their own boxes of title deeds. And one of the things he also says is, who else is doing this? He doesn't have time in his article to touch on those things, um, but he, he establishes very clearly um, some very prominent um, gentry families in the 17th century um, and what I think we can see is strong Elizabethan engagement with that kind of activity but also I think there is a longevity to these kinds of practices and perhaps even some special circumstances um, or unique circumstances that make Kent a special place that enables this kind of interaction and engagement so we might think about some of those um, as we go through, I'm spending too much time speaking. Right, so, one of the easiest and most accessible ways into thinking about the sharing ideas um, is to look at Barnaby Googe's work. Um, so he translates this um, Four Books of Husbandry from a Latin um, text and has it print published in 1578. But he also extends and expands this work um, and he introduces information from his friends and associates as well as sharing his own knowledge. Um, and if any of you saw the Facebook, did anyone, any of you see the Facebook um, blurb that I did? Um, here you can see um, Googe using information from my friend William Pratt about how to cook asparagus. So he talks about how to grow asparagus and what the best conditions are. Um, and he has a recipe just here in the springtime. They make a very good salad, being sodden water or fat broth till they be tender. For if you seeth them too, if you seeth them too much, they will waste away. When they be sodden, they, they dress them with vinegar, oil, pepper, and salt. This is the recipe I promised you. But his friend William Pratt says, who is very skillful in these matters, they cut them in small pieces like dice, and after they have parboiled them, butter them with sweet butter, a little vinegar, and pepper. So one of the things that Googe does in Englishing this text is to introduce knowledge by his friends and associates. And this, this text is peppered um, with information like this um, from his friends and associates. So that's one way and perhaps we can see those kinds of conversations that um, Joan Thirsk talks about, wishing we could reconstruct, um, seen here um, on the printed page. He does more than this though, because as well as listing the classical authorities for his work, we can see them here, Plato, Aristotle, um, Virgil, Ovid, um, all the classic um, names, he also has a list um, of his friends and associates. And we can see here um, William Lambard, uh, some of his neighbours, um, Thomas um, Wheatenham, um, the Deerings, the Brockholes, the Franklins, um, a lot of these people, the Partridges, are Kent families and are local to him um, and live in um, proximity to him. So he's doing something very interesting, I think, in mapping his conversations, in mapping his friendships, in mapping information from those around him. Just have a little look on here how we're doing. So we see it in the main body of the text, 
and we also see it um, in the lists of authorities. And we also sometimes see it in marginal annotations. So why not go and read um, Reginald Scott's book about hop growing if you want to know about hops? And you'll have that in a little marginal annotation. So there are lots of ways in which these writers seem to be having conversations with each other, perhaps, um, but certainly are familiar with each other's writings. And that is very, very interesting, I think. Um, they are living in Kent. Um, and you can see, it doesn't look very glamorous on here, I need to make my little circles bigger. Um, but if we were just to map um, some of Googe's network, um, south of Maidstone, if you are to map William Lambard's network, and this is not all of them by any means, you can see another circle there. And over here, um, we can see around Ashford, um, Reginald Scott's network. So we are seeing, I think, a, a proximity um, a neighbourhood uh, and people sharing ideas and sharing books. Here's another quick example from Barnaby Googe, the beginning of the fourth book. Um, and what is particularly interesting to me, of course, is the way in which um, all of these books are figured as conversations. So you have two or three protagonists who are having a, a conversation. It's, it's a classical um, strategy. But when Gouge starts introducing information from his friends, when he starts talking about his own bee garden, which I realise is incredibly topical, he, has a, he devises a garden um, to encourage bees, to encourage pollination, which is something we probably should be thinking about again now. Um, when he is voicing his own ideas very visibly um, through one of these characters, there are very, very interesting things going on, I think. So here's another quick example. Um, Polarius um, talks about how he found a particular herb called Veronica. I remember that passing by the house of the Honourable Baron, the Lord Cobham, whose house you shall seldom see without great resort by reason of his noble disposition and honourable entertainment that he gives to all comers, I chanced to see in his park at Cobham a certain herb called Veronica. This is definitely not in the Latin original. This is something that Googe um, is adding in, of course, perhaps to cultivate patronage, um, but also, I think, to do a very interesting um, process of mapping, because then his friends presumably could pass that way and see that herb. It's not just, though, in print-published work that we see this kind of collaboration. And this is a document um, that is here, and I had to change it from CKS. That's how long I've had these images. Um, and this is William Lambard's hand, um, and it's a book of medicines for diseased cattle. Um, so it's a very practical guide, um, and he's clearly copied it out very neatly in a presentation copy to give to a friend. So although we have this tip of the iceberg, which I think is the print-published world, which is very visible and very accessible to us, underneath this, I think, is a, is a great deal of activity in manuscript. Um, and you also have here, I think, another, um, another of Lambard's um, documents, or is it here or at Canterbury, I forget now, um, where he's copied um, some information from an ancient text and ascribed it to the library of William Lovelace, um, who lived at Betherston. We're going to talk a little bit about him in a minute as well. So there's a sense in which there's a manuscript culture um, that is running parallel to um, and, and is underpinning, I think, what we ultimately see um, in print. And another example, it works very well with the agricultural material. Reginald Scott, 1584, 
um, writing um, in his discovery of witchcraft about the book that we've just looked at. So here he is recommending Barnaby Googe's work on um, husbandry here, direct and lawful means of curing cattle. So you can see that these three writers have their networks, have their associates, and are all interested in the same issues to do with animal husbandry and animal well-being at about the same time. So there's some kind of circulation of ideas and texts in print and manuscript um, in this period. So that's one way I think we can think about the role of books um, in society. And Margaret Easel is very, very interesting. Um, she's actually talking about the 18th century here, but she talks about the importance of thinking about the value of books um, as part of a process of social exchange. Um, she talks about the importance of thinking about who is writing and who is reading rather than who is printing and who is buying. But she puts great value on enabling us through this process to see the text as a part of an ongoing process of exchange rather than a commercial activity. And that's really, really interesting. These writers are print publishing, um, but circulating ideas in manuscript uh, and showing that they've read each other's works as well. Um, not, I think, for commercial gain in any way, um, but as, part, as a visible part of a broader process of connection and, and discussion and engagement um, at a local level. So just quickly moving on from that, thinking about activities of, of collecting books and sharing books. And of course, um, Sheila Hingley has written a lot on the Oxenden Library and she's got a chapter in this book where she talks about um, the lenders lists and you can see who's borrowing books and how that, lo that rural library is functioning um, as, as, a, as a meeting point um, within um, Oxenden's wider um, social circle. That's 17th century. We can see this happening 16th century. We can see it happening in the 15th century in Kent as well. There are some really exciting libraries, I think. Um, and again, I think we're just in the tip of the iceberg. Of course, a long time ago now, in the 70s, uh, Peter Clarke wrote um, a lot about Kent. And he talked about um, the book-owning um, habits of the Kentish. Um, and he says that by the end of the 16th century... I don't know, I can find it on here now. Um, here we are. He says, by, the, by 1640, he says, almost every county landholder of note would have had several shelves of books at home, while the courtiers, like the Sydneys and the Cobhams, would have had substantial book collections by the end of the 16th century. Um, and of course there are some really exuberant book collectors, Sir, Henry, uh, Sir Edward Deering is one of those, of course, and Henry Oxenden, who collected over 100 English plays as part of this bigger collection. But we can see this in the 16th century as well. And these are um, on the Bodleian catalogue, but they are part of a collection, um, surviving collection, of very distinctively bound books um, that belong to Thomas Watton, who was the patron of um, a perambulation of Kent and a very prominent um, figure, um, who has many of his books very distinctively bound and clearly has um, a considerable collection 
um, at Bowden Malherb um, in um, the early years of Elizabeth's reign. I think his collection is, is really formulated in that sort of period. Um, and interestingly, on the front, he has in Latin an inscription of Thomas Watton and his friends, which I think we can take in various ways. But I think one of those ways that we should be thinking about this um, is not just posturing, I think. Um, it's not just espousing um, particular sort of civic humanist values. Um, I think there may be practical um, use, practical engagement um, by his friends with that library. And just a quick, again, taster of that um, extensive world of book collecting. In the second half of the 16th century, I can think of at least four or five large libraries within five, within a five mile radius of Canterbury. So I'm thinking of um, Christopher Nevison's collection at Adisham, um, probably dispersed by Elizabeth's reign, but, but nevertheless there um, in the middle years of that century. Um, the Parker collection at Beeksbourne, Robert Hooker's collection um, at Bishopsbourne, the Oxendons were surely starting their collection um, at Barham in that period. Um, and I, I think we need to think in very exciting ways about these book collections and, and the significance of having these large private collections um, in this earlier part of the period. One of the really exciting things about William Lambard is the remnants, um, the extensive remnants we have of, of his um, archive. Um, and this is at the Draper's Hall. Um, and you can just read, I hope, in the crossed out, um, reserved for my house in London, William Lambard. So Lambard, it seems to me, has two collections of books. He's got his collection in London, um, a house that he was renting from the Draper's Hall, it's probably that property. He's also got his collection at home. He seems to be organizing these two collections, um, leaving instructions as to where they should be housed. And this again, also from Draper's Hall, I really like this. There's a little moment from one of his account books where he's detailing um, what he's worth. So in 1579, um, he's worth 368 pounds or thereabouts. Uh, and he's not including a lease of St. Clair's. He's not including the rents that are now due. He's not including his horses, his clothing or his books. I would like the idea that you take your books out of your household account. There's something that you don't perhaps want to think about how much you spent on. Um, but he's clearly actively collecting um, and extending his own library and is quite well aware um, of how much money he's spending. So my last little section um, was to think about motivations for writing books. Um, and I think that friendship and that support that we see um, from that network and those shared ideas um, and the interconnections between these writers are very, very interesting. I think that's one clear motivation, um, the support that comes from those networks. But quite recently, um, there's been a couple of um, really good um, books and articles. Um, I'm thinking about Jennifer Bishop's recent article um, where she urges 
um, more careful consideration of urban archives and she has a lovely um, piece on um, the City of London archive um, and a particular clerk in there who uses print publication in very, very interesting ways. And she talks about the importance of, of thinking about the people that are behind the creation of these documents. Um, and of course Arthur Morotti has also um, talked you know, for a while now about those social worlds of obligation, of relationships and of motivation um, that inform textual production. Um, so thinking about the diverse reasons and the diverse motivations for um, moving into print or circulating a text in manuscript as well. So we've seen that these writers in the 1570s have an interest, a shared interest in agriculture. Um, and here we have what I think is quite luxuriously illustrated um, little pamphlet really on how to grow hops, um, dedicated to William Lovelace, who we've already met several times over. Um, and Googe encourages his patron to perhaps set aside a part of his own estate um, to grow hops and promises that he will help him uh, with the digging. Clearly, local patronage is really important. We have, I think, this very established, strong patronage networks in Kent um, that probably date back um, into the previous century. Um, Lovelace is certainly one of those figures around whom these writers um, gather. But just briefly, there's another another motivation for writing that I've been thinking about much more um, quite recently. Um, John Took, as you remember at the beginning, when I pinched that image from Dover Museum, is a, primarily a mariner. He's not primarily a gentleman, he's not one of the landed elite, but he must have had some education. And in 1604, 1605, you can see the date on this um, image from the British Library manuscript that it's in, um, he puts together a discourse, a history of Dover Harbour. And in that work, he um, talks about um, Hollinshed's Chronicle, and he talks about William Lambard, and he clearly has um, ready access to works of history. Um, and these are in both print and manuscript. So he's living in Dover, um, and he has, clearly has access to a range of books. Um, and he writes his own discourse, um, his own history of the town. And he does this probably with the support of his friends, and he's part of a network of um, Puritan, uh, certainly Protestant, um, educated elite within the town, as, as Mary Dixon has shown in her research on, on the history of Dover. But he's writing for as an audience, um, not in Kent primarily, I think, but in London. He is probably writing for, um, possibly for the king, but almost definitely um, for key um, figures um, at a state level. At 1604, Dover Harbour returns to, is returned to the monarch. But 1604 is also a year, of course, where we have a new monarch. We have Charles I. We also have a new Lord Warden of the Sinkports, who is not Kentish. So it seems to me that there's a very interesting, important external audience that um, Took is writing for. 
he's talking about the ancient history and the more recent history of the harbour um, and he has an eye to arguing for the, the perpetual maintenance of that harbour. But he has a very crucial moment, I think, with a new monarch, with a non-Kentish uh, Lord Warden, uh, and with the return of this harbour. Um, he uses this historical knowledge and his access to books um, to create this text. So one of the other important ways in which these writers are operating is in their interest in um, defending their local rights, defending their, um, their towns and their liberties um, in response to requests and demands from the state. So this process of book collecting and reading and writing and the sharing of ideas is operating on all sorts of different levels, um, interconnected levels. Um, but Took, I think, offers us a very, offers us a very interesting way in to thinking about um, the complexities of book culture and the different purposes to which knowledge um, is being put. Just finally then, thinking of another network, um, I wanted to uh, recommend this Heritage A to Z that we've just been working on. Um, we have um, entries for every, every letter celebrating the 30 years of Canterbury's UNESCO um, World Heritage um, status. Um, and in there I talk about um, another network. I talk about the Wattons, I talk about John Traderscant. And um, it's another lovely example, I think, of the kinds of networks um, and shared endeavour and shared interest. Um, that has um, been a key aspect of my talk. Lovely. Thank you.